Hello and welcome to Therapist on Therapist. I am your host, Kimberly Anderson. Today I have the unique pleasure to interview Leslie Cook. Leslie is a psychologist. She has a PsyD. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and a neuropsychologist, and she practices in Virginia. Leslie's specialties are autism, ADHD, anxiety, academic underachievement, developmental disorders, etc., etc. She also works closely with the LGBT and transgender population. Um, she also does hula, which I did not know until this interview. So you never know what these therapists you know, have hiding up their sleeve. They're remarkable people. So the, the quicker I shut up, the quicker we can get to hearing about them. Thanks for listening. Okay, so I should introduce you. Okay. <laughs> since I haven't yet, and since I've I do this. I prattle when I get, oh, so here's another ground rule. When I get okay. nervous, I make a fool out of myself. Oh, that's my favorite parts about people. So, so to that end, I brought my Fox hoodie in case I need to wear my it. Favorite. <laughs> I could wear, I might Wait. just start, I might just put it, I might just put it on to just ease any nervous energy. Okay. She's so grabbing for something. My, this is what I use. Top of the morning. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. Or. So I have a I have a green top hat, or sometimes when I work with my kid clients and we talk about shame. Yes. About, oh, look at this. Like, okay. How ridiculous shame makes us look sometimes to ourselves. So, so what yeah. you can't see, dear viewer, is Leslie has this glorious mane of Tina Turner esque hair on top of a green St. Patty's Day top hat, and I'm wearing my knit fox hoodie. And it is possibly the most self-deprecating moment of, I would assume, well, certainly my career. Yes, are you going to take a screenshot of this? Because if you don't, maybe I'll yes, do it. Yes, but I, I promise I won't post it unless there's mutual consent. But it's just too good not to <laughs> document in time. <laughs> I'm capturing the entire screen. Oh, no, no, put that back on. I have not captured yet. Get it, get that back okay, on. Okay. It's back on. Okay, good. You can, okay, good. This will be posted. Well, absolutely with consent. Okay, save. Oh my God, this is the best. So when you talk about like making a fool out of yourself, that's one of the things that I used to compartmentalize is this really is how I am in therapy too with a, with adults, hair in my mouth, and children. And the more I just let myself exist in that space, I think it really gives the clients that I work with permission to be vulnerable because there is nothing dorkier than me in a wig over a hat. <laughs> and same. Would you have ever thought, oh, wait, you're taking yours off now? Or are we done with this shame? <laughs> the self-deprecation? The only reason I'm taking it off is because I have, I think, a sensory issue. But, but those are moments I live for, where we just are human and we're raw yeah. and we're vulnerable and we're just goofy. Yeah. Okay, and I now, think oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I think also the visuals for, for clients and on TikTok, I think that's the other thing that makes it helpful, especially with parenting or these really complex topics. When there's something outrageous in that way or silly or to an audio, people remember. So they think back when they have a moment with their child, they remember what someone said. When I have a client in therapy and I'm talking about the layers of shame and I've got you know, a hat and a wig and a beanie and I'm taking them All off. All the layers run, of shame. Yeah, it lets them remember that better when they're in the moment. It's not an intellectual activity. It's a it's a 
they remember the joy and the silliness of that moment and it helps them use the skill later. I love it. Yeah. How many like gazillion topics can I just like just say that I want to talk to you? Didn't I schedule? I wanted to schedule four hours, but we can only do two. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to introduce you and then I'm going to cut and I'm going to, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to stick that introduction at the first of the, at the first of the podcast. <clears throat> so I'm going to clear my throat okay. and try and put on my radio voice, I suppose, which is the same as my normal voice. Uh, so here I'm going to introduce you and boop. All right. Good morning and welcome to Therapist on Therapist. I am your host, Kimberly Anderson. I am joined by the amazingly vulnerable uh, Lindsay Cook, Saidi. And I want to just give her, give you, Lindsay, uh, Leslie, holy fucking shit. Okay, so one of the ground rules. <laughs> hey, dude, I'll change my name. That's fine. I'm just happy to be here with you. Oh, okay. So alternate name for Leslie would be Lindsay. Alternate name for Kimberly would be Kim. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Can you take a few minutes, Leslie, and introduce yourself with your R2D2 mug? Oh my God, you're just like, oh, yeah, I have my, my must have my R2D2 mug, and I have a little Star Wars music box. Uh, so I'm Leslie Cook, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I work mostly in the areas of neurodivergence, so ADHD, autism, um, learning disabilities. I do a lot of work with parents and children, and I do a lot of work with LGBT folks um, who are also neurodivergent. Um, I have a background in assessment and, um, I've done, actually I've kind of a jack of all trades. I've done a lot of things, but I think I'm, I've, I've landed in the place I'd like to be for a, a while, which is really working with neurodivergent individuals on making their life more congruent with, um, what brings them joy. Yeah, that's it. What could be better? <laughs> nothing. Like literally nothing. I was working with my with a uh, trans kid of mine, well, young adult, um, and he brought in his girlfriend, trans girl, and they both have interest in becoming psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists. And I said, I promise you that if you choose this path, you will have a moment in the future where you are sitting with the client, and there's this absolute moment of pure clarity that you were in exactly the right place doing exactly the right thing. And I said to them, that moment for me is right now. Mm-hmm. This was yesterday. Uh, that's an incredibly beautiful way of putting that. And that's how I, I find a lot of the things that I hear you say on TikTok. It really sums up a feeling that I've also felt in, in a very different way. Mm-hmm as a therapist that is really hard to put into words that moment of congruence where like, Oh, this is where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. It's really powerful. It's a miracle, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How'd you become a therapist? I'm sorry. You're not a therapist. No, wait, how did I you am- become, how did you become what you are? I'm going to let you self identify. How did you become okay. this miracle of life? Um, <laughs> A very long road, actually. I, I went to, I, first of all, I had um, have an incredible mom who dedicated her life to working with um, kids and adults with autism and then later women in addiction. Um, she ran, she was the, the executive director of a family treatment services program, which was really innovative for its time in the, in the 70s, late 70s, mostly early 80s and 90s that allowed women in inpatient mandated treatment to bring their babies. Oh, so wow. that they could, 
yeah, it was incredible. It was, it was also a research project to see if that improved the outcomes for the women and also the developmental outcomes for the babies. And it certainly did. And that program is still in existence. Um, what a legacy. Yeah. So I grew up, you know, watching her practice her legislative speeches at the table to get more funding for women in addiction. I, um, on, on days that I was quote unquote sick, I had a, you know, oh no, I can't go to school today. She would bring me to work with her back in the days where we could do that in mental health. And so I grew up watching this incredible life of service. Um, so I was bound and determined to be a teacher. I was a teaching major. Um, I went to Gonzaga University, which is really, awesome, yeah, awesome right. little college in Washington. Yeah, yeah, come on. Um, and in the first three months of the program I had a 1.9 GPA and my oh, advisor yes. was like you should not be a teacher don't be a teacher you're not very good at this so it's <laughs> affirmations all around yeah and actually we might talk more or later or maybe even off off um, the recording about that's been a common theme in my life is people saying you really shouldn't be doing this you're not very good I love and, that word shouldn't be yeah because you know. know what I say it shouldn't be don't shit a, on a, a, a two word for I say fuck you that's my two word phrase it shouldn't be <laughs> I love it that's my yeah. like my gut. That's my limbic reaction. Yeah, and so I am a very oppositional person by nature. So as soon as someone said that, I was like, "Fine, I didn't want to be a teacher anyway. I'm going to take this psych class." And I had an amazing instructor. And by the end of the class, I was done. I was like, "Nope, this is where I was supposed to be." And it really took off from there. So I did my undergraduate. I took a few years off. Um, and then I decided that I, I did some really cool things, but I wanted to do more than that. I really wanted to do assessment um, and learn the science, the harder science side um, of the field. And so I went and got a doctorate, which is a whole story in it of itself. Well, that's why we're here. Let's hear a little bit of that story it, or whatever's comfortable and whatever, whatever you feel is relevant. Oh, I love talking. So <laughs> Perfect. I'm always we're on, we're, on a, we're on a podcast and we have an hour and a half. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So I, um, I spent the three years after um, my undergraduate training, I got married. I had a very young child and I got a job doing what at the time was called home visitation. It was a, um, an intensive in-home program, education though, not therapy for people who were judged to be at risk of child abuse and neglect. So in the Whoa, state of Hawaii, wow. Yeah, everyone that gave birth in the state of Hawaii was screened for risk for child abuse, which is a whole thing in and of itself, good and bad. And if you scored above a certain threshold, you were offered in an optional program where a home visitor would come to your home um, once a week and would monitor your child's development and provide you parenting things. And there were groups and there was teaching on economics. And it was like this really beautiful wraparound program. And I worked in public housing, in the roughest public housing um, well, and I'll put that in quotes, the roughest public housing. That was its um, image. Uh, and this, was, this was in Hawaii? Yeah, this was on Oahu. Oh, okay. And, and those we, and, years, and So I'm going to put a pin in Hawaii because I definitely want to come back to Hawaii. I, I do too. I, w I always want to go back to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we'll, we'll come back. Oh, yeah, I'm the queen of like dad jokes. Um, so those three years I spent working with people in abject poverty, um, who most of them had um, immigrated. At that time, there was a huge influx from Chuk, which is um, a nation in Micronesia, who didn't speak much English, who brought um, lots and lots of kids over living in public housing. 
and had a really bad reputation. What I experienced in those three years in terms of the incredible um, strength of those family systems, how much I learned from those families. You know, I was, I was what, you know, 21 years old, supposed to be teaching these families something and wow. in actuality, they taught me more than I could ever have ever taught them. And that was really the first time that I realized that personal connections with people were was much more important than any concrete knowledge you were giving them. Um, my undergraduate area of specialty was development. So when I was working with these families, you know, I, I was supposed to be teaching them and measuring their success. But the, the best thing that ever happened between us was helping overstressed parents who were in a new country and didn't speak the language understand their babies. What do they speak in Chuk? What language do they, do they speak there? Chukis. Wow. Um, yep. Yeah. And so there's the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, there's a compact with the U.S. because a long time ago, the U.S. basically bombed the entire Pacific um, to oblivion to test nuclear weapons. And as a result, there's an extremely high rate of cancers. Um, many of the atolls in the Pacific cannot grow food. The soil is still contaminated. So they rely upon canned goods and um, shipments from the mainland U.S. over to um, those nations to survive. And a lot of them come to Hawaii when they can't, they just can't make it any longer. Wow. And then they faced really harsh discrimination, um, not systemically, but it, interestingly, there is kind of inter-Pacific discrimination between different Pacific Island nations. Um, so they had a really rough go of it. They also have a non, a, a matrilineal society. Which They're, as I understand is very common in the Pacific Islands. Mm -hmm. Yep. They, their understandings of, this is what I ended up doing my dissertation on. That's why I'm kind of giving you oh, a little yeah, bit Oh yeah. Okay. Let's, we're digging now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So they have a different understanding of time. Time is really nonlinear. So you go to the doctor, the person when you're sick, you don't make an appointment because why would I make an appointment? I don't know when I'm going to feel sick. And the doctor isn't a profession, it's a person in Micronesia. So if I'm feeling sick, I go to the doctor. So what would happen a lot is um, they would be in, in quotes here, making air quotes, they would be late to doctor's appointments, late mm. to work. They would, if their children needed them, they would just not show up to work if their kids needed something. Um, and culturally, this is acceptable. Yeah, it's yeah. a very collectivist culture as well. So they would send, they would work really hard, make all this money and send 80% of it back to Chuk. And so they would stay living in poverty. And so what on the outside people saw was they don't care. They don't care about themselves. They would say, well, they smell bad. Well, that's because they use traditional oils in their hair. Um, they're always chew. They're rude. They're always chewing on things. It's gross and spitting. Well, betel nut is a, is a, a natural analgesic. And it's something that a lot of people in Micronesia chew recreationally. So I just, my eyes were just opened to the impact of, discrimination, cultural differences, and how not important all this quote unquote information I had was that w what was most important is these people were really hurting um, because assimilation was really difficult and they did better when they had people that wanted to understand them and learn and be a support. So that's what really pushed me into doing graduate work was I was working with these families thinking like, this isn't enough. This is not enough. You want a next level yeah. stuff, okay. And I interviewed to do the master's program and they told me, you know, a master's in psychology is great, but 
you know, if you really want to do what you say you want to do, you're going to need to get a doctorate. And me and being- this was at Gonzaga, correct? No, now this is at Argosy University in Hawaii. So I've, I graduated, oh, okay, okay. all this was after my bachelor's degree. Um, and as, as you well know, a bachelor's in psychology doesn't get you much. Um, well, I don't have one, so I, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's what I've well, learned is, know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I know, that's right. It doesn't really get you much. Um, and so doctoral, doctoral training is really long. It's five years. So that, yeah. that training is, is a whole road of twists and turns. I went on to do um, community-based mental health with severely mentally ill people. So I've wow. done therapy in, on park benches and on houseboats and in closets. I've had clients show up nude. Um, the Secret Service visited one time because one of my clients was um, writing some not so nice letters to the president at the time. Um, and these experiences were all so incredibly important because none of them were things that I thought I wanted to learn about. But once I was there and I was working with these individuals, it, I don't know, it changed my view of things in a way that was so complete. It shifted everything I thought I knew about wanting to be an expert, wanting to know, you know, all the right answers. It really blew my brain apart and I had to reorganize it. Um, and then I got divorced in the middle of grad school and was a single parent, you know, living on almost nothing. And so that, that was another kind of shifting change. In Hawaii. In Hawaii. Yeah. I moved six times in 12 months once with my stuff in, in garbage bags with two little kids. It was wild. Yeah. And we know little kids moving is often little T trauma, sometimes big T trauma. Yeah. Luckily. Div oh, sorry. Divorce certainly is big T trauma. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you're helping these people with their trauma. Mm -hmm. And you started with a tremendous capacity for compassion mm -hmm. from your mother. Holy cow, I want to learn like her whole thing. Yeah. And then you, so you had that compassion with you, starting your PsyD program, moving to Hawaii, and having your mind expanded yet again. Mm -hmm. How many levels of compassion can we, can we grow to? Is it infinite? I think it might be. I think it might be, but I talk a lot with my clients about the idea of even in the universe, if we're going to talk really, really big. Mm -hmm. I hope so. I'd love to. Yeah. So like the idea of expansion and contraction, that nothing is static and, and anything that looks static is an illusion. So the idea of radically expanding that compassion, but for me, that also led to, um, how can I explain it? When I, when I talk to my clients, oh, sorry for all the beeps here. Um, You're a popular girl. <laughs> sorry about that. When I talk to my clients about when we expand our skills and our, our capacity to hold emotion, strong emotion, that gets really big. If it gets too big, it can start to fall apart. Like, like putty that we pull too far apart. Oh, it can start okay. to, when we notice that we're reaching that edge, then we have to come back together, kind of go back to that center, that midline, metaphorical place. And I feel like that's what's happened with me over time is that, yes, I have great capacity for compassion, but that's also led to great pain because mm. difficult to turn that off. Um, and I think that makes us more, more vulnerable to being um, in negative relationships when we are so compassionate to wounded people that sometimes setting boundaries with those people is also challenging. Um, yeah. 
So I just raised my hand, by the way. Yeah. So. <laughs> the visuals are yeah. hard on a, on a podcast. It's just audio. They are. I have to remember to narrate. So right. the idea of, of, of stretching ourselves as people, but then coming back to grounding and nourishing the self before we do that again, I think is such an important thing. And that's, that's what I think my life has really been a series of expansions and contractions. And are you finding the, con the, con the contraction is necessary to be able to expand in a later time? It is. And it's also upsetting to other people. Uh -oh. So when, whenever we note, you know, I'm, I'm too extended, I need to return to myself. Other people don't always like that because they like when you're expanded and taking care of their needs and empathically connecting. And I think sometimes early therapists, especially if they don't learn that can get overextended and that's where burnout happens and errors happen and misjudgments. It's very important to remember to come come back to that center. So this is an interesting idea that as you're expanding and you kind of are intrinsically understanding the nature that you need to contract, you're feeling yourself contract and that boundary becoming greater and greater between the people you're trying to help. You're seeing them want to attach to you closer and closer and maybe you're drawn to withdraw even quicker mm -hmm. or more dramatically. There's some tension there in that pulling back and those people that you've been serving desperately still needing you. Yeah. Huh. Visuals with Leslie. Episode <laughs> episode one. And I do think in visuals and metaphor primarily so that sometimes that can be challenging because not everyone does think that way. Some people think, and in fact, you can see that with some of the TikToks that I post, people will say, but, but if I'm not supposed to do this thing, then what is the thing I'm supposed to do? Hmm think it's hard because my answer is I don't know I don't I guess we'll never know yeah I'll have to yeah that's true oh good, good idea I'm writing that one down um because the truth is the way that I work is so individualized so I don't know it's all about balance so I'd have to know you and your family and your child to tell you what I think the right answer is because I don't believe in right answers okay so for me that actually plays into one of my well natural curiosities, which has turned into a strength currently, is I'm all about context. Mm -hmm. I love the context. And that was a major part of my career prior that has served me well now. I tend to be kind of ceaselessly curious. Mm -hmm. And then I reach a point, and I heard a, a Buddhist monk speaking once about details in people's lives. He said, be careful of the people that want all of the details of your pain, mm -hmm. because that's how you can identify the people that are in your life for entertainment. That's how you can identify the people that are tourists in your life. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in a moment of asking for context or asking for detail, I try to remember to share. I want to remind you that I'm not a tourist in your life. Your experience with me is not a source of entertainment for me. The context helps me understand how I can uniquely move forward and help you in this very special way that you need. That's what I'm hearing from you right now. I, I love that phrase. I have not heard it said that way, but that's exactly what I'm always trying to balance on TikTok. It's really my primary social media presence and it gets very challenging because I want to meet the needs of folks that want education and information, but I don't want to do so in a way that is exploitive or overstepping. I want to really be respectful to 
each of these people that reaches out, even the ones that are angry with me, they're all in pain. And I don't want to exploit their story for views. And isn't that an interesting tug and pull too? Mm -hmm. I can think of asking me to exploit their story. (laughs) They want me. Right. And couldn't, and sometimes, and I, this is true for me, so I don't want to project. I almost said, I know this is true for you, but then I pulled back and I'm like, no, this may not be true for Leslie because she has her shit together. But for me, (laughs) I have a lot of TikToks that I could make that would be, that would drive a lot of views, would drive a lot of likes. And I'm like, Kimberly, don't do that. Just do the stuff that really, and I find that I actually don't like having drafts. I like having an idea and responding to it in the moment mm-hmm. and having it maybe not be as calculated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. Do you think that's a responsibility that we as therapists on TikTok have? Boy, I don't want to get in my projecting or am I romanticizing this whole thing? I just have, I want to be really careful that what I'm sharing is always accurate and is more about me than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I do think we have that responsibility. And that's one of the things that I think is I really hold as important. And I learned early in my program, which is when you are in a helping profession, you know, a doctor is a doctor, whether he is performing a surgery or, or she or they. Yeah, or she or they. Well, I was going to I was going to list other ones, too. OK, thank you. <laughs> Kimberly, um, shut the fuck up. Leslie knows what she's doing. Okay. No, I think it's a good reframe. Um, you know, or or an attorney is an attorney, whether they are in a courtroom or in a car wreck of their own. And so when when you are in a helping profession of some kind, you are that person. And other whether or not we want to be that person in every context, because sometimes it's hard to be the therapist in a group. It, as you well know, I'm sure, is, you know, we get time. asked a lot of things. Yeah. We get told a lot of things we didn't necessarily want to hear sometimes. Um, so I do think it's our responsibility that because the illusion that I get to turn that off and on whenever I want isn't real. And we we have to always be self-reflective of our of our impact on other people. But but doing that is really hard. I agree with you. There are a thousand TikToks that I think are funny and would people would absolutely catch um, the humor in, uh, I also know that I, as a therapist, there are lots of things that, that I have heard in therapy that I could, um, skew in a negative way and would be, would get lots of views. But the next thing I think is my goodness, what if one of those people experiencing that ever saw that, right? I would never want to trade someone's pain for likes. It just, you know, and sometimes I feel like that's my age too, that, you know, if TikTok is 35, 36. Oh, thanks. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be 42 and in, in a couple of weeks, you will be the answer to the universe. Oh yeah. Oh, it's going to be the best year ever. Yeah. It's going to be the best year ever. Leslie's 42. The pandemic's over. Yeah. She can unlo- unleash her magic. <laughs> And solve the universe. I'll have to find my magic first and then I'll and then Oh I'll... no. <laughs> Friend, you have your ma- you found your magic a long time ago. Oh, I really appreciate that. I just you know, also when people ask me like why do you 
what, why is this what you do? Because I joke all the time about there, I have to do this. There's nothing else I know how to do. The only thing I've ever gotten in trouble for in school is for forgetting things and talking too much. And now I have a job where I can talk about forgetting things and people like it. And that is just the best thing ever. Um, so this Hero's is journey. The, Hero's journey. Yeah. It's the only thing that I know how to do. And I, it's such a privilege. I don't know if you feel like this, but sometimes people will leave my, my virtual office right now, but they'll leave my office and I'll think for an hour, someone told me the thing that they were most scared to tell any other human being and let me hold that with them and trust that I wasn't going to hurt them. And I just think like, what an incredible, like, this is a job that we get to do. So I, I, yes, I'm about ready to break down. Oh. My pink elephant. Mm -hmm. uh, my first session of the day yesterday, there was a giant pink elephant from the mm -hmm. previous session. And I like to carry this uh, in my bag if I'm not at the clinic. I like to take it with me wherever I go. It's very, it comes in very, I'll make a TikTok about the pink elephant. Um, and there was a TikTok, or there was a TikTok in the room. There was a white, there was an elephant in the room from the previous session the week before. And I said, I, I think we need to address uh, the elephant in the room. And I pulled this out of my bag and I put it on the table. This is an in-person, three-dimensional, actual living, breathing person in front of me. Yeah. Shocker. And she sees the elephant and she just shoots for it. Oh, wow. And she picks it up and she looks at it and she feels it and she just holds it close. Yeah. And everything I'd said about an elephant in the room from the prior session. Mm -hmm. And she held this elephant and she just broke down and started crying. And she went into, and I will not get specific, she went into her own literal, she had a pink elephant when she was a little girl. Oh, wow. And the, it was made out of, out of the same felt. It was the same color. Hmm. And it had a little pocket on the side that she would put rock salt in. Huh. And at night, when she was in her safe place finally, and she was away from the things that were hurting her, she would take the rock salt out and she would suck on it and she would tell the elephant all of her secrets and fall mm. asleep. And she, we spent, we spent 90 minutes. I only try to do, I try to do an hour long session, but yesterday with her, no, we were full, full on 90 minutes. And um, I feel like my door is open. Oh, it is open. I should shut my door. Um, she went to a place in her own trauma, and I know she had seen several other therapists prior to meeting with me. And I said, have you processed this trauma with anybody else? And she said, no. Wow. She'd never voiced any of this to anyone, maybe one of her kids. I said, is this the first place you're giving voice to these experiences? And she says, yes, mm. because of that little pink elephant. And in that moment, I knew I was treading on sacred ground with her mm. that she'd never walked across before. And I was honored and privileged to be alongside her. Yeah. And I don't know if we talk about that enough with not only our clients, but also just putting that out to the, the world that the reason that we don't answer all the questions that we could 
on social media or um, or say things that people want us to say or tear people down is because we don't stop being these people when we leave our offices mm -hmm. at least most of us that and we really do um look at these experiences and these moments in time i talk to my i, I love astrophysics so i talk to a lot of my clients about imagining these kind of bubbles or wormholes or alternate dimensions that this space when you close that door this space is another dimension in which no one can hurt you here mm. you know and and when we leave the space we know we're going back into that world and you can leave that stuff here if you're if you're nervous about these and by these things i mean these thoughts these experiences these traumas it's okay to put that leave that in this wormhole right it's okay to leave that in this bubble universe um, because it'll be waiting for you when you come back and we can look at it again. So it is a privilege. So I do take all the things we do very seriously um, because it, the, the career also doesn't last forever. So it's a brief really moment in time that we're interacting with people hoping to reduce their suffering and increase their joy. And I want to do a good job and I want to mess it up. So. I see a TARDIS behind you. Yes, one of my many TARDISes. I've seen at least two in your TikToks. Yeah. Yep. So you like astrophysics. Mm -hmm. The other day I watched Sojourner land on Mars and I cried. Mm -hmm. Yes. Some of my favorite movies. I wonder if, if we're going to have a Venn diagram of movies here. Contact. Yes. Prometheus. I've never seen Prometheus. Okay. Uh, alien or aliens. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and I just want to quote Hicks all the time now, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're in a pile of shit. Uh, <laughs> uh, arrival. Mm -hmm. um, Interstellar. Ah. I can't watch Interstellar all that often. I'm a repeat movie watcher, but I, that one I have to wait in between the contact I've probably seen. I don't even know. Okay to go. Okay to go. Okay to go. Okay to go. <laughs> and I think there's also something about this scene on the beach. Mm. Allowing. Don't make me cry, but yes, please. Okay. <laughs> no, but listener. please. Yes, yes, yes. It, it's like a, it's a metaphor, I think, to reprocessing trauma, to, to taking the things that have been so incredibly painful and experiencing them in a new way. And in, in that way, it's a very intentional way. It's, a, it's another being. But in some ways, you know, I talk with clients about when you are not, when you are being hurtful to yourself, instead of doing that, you know, I ask my clients a lot, tell me the, the age at which is the last time you remember feeling worthy, that oh, you didn't deserve anything bad. Yep, yep. And so when you are having a hard time eating or sleeping or taking a rest, I don't want you to do it for you. I want you to imagine in front of you is that version of you. And I want you to do, you know, care for that version of you. And I always think about that when she's on the beach, because that's what those beings allowed her to do, reprocess her pain in a safe way. So I, I love that movie for many reasons. Besides that the fact like EMDR. That yeah, yeah. 
alien EMDR. <laughs> yeah, I find the crossover of psychology and, and science, especially the science of reality, so incredibly powerful. And I wish more mental health professionals kind of thought in that way. I think you have a friend in me on that. I think I, we were already there, but that's that's extra. I'm sorry. I said I think we were already there, but this is like bonus. Oh, next next, next <laughs> level, yeah, yeah, yeah. How many brain models do you have in your in your office? I saw your TikTok and I felt deep sadness because I owned that one on the stick. I owned that for over a decade, and a little client stole it from my office. Ah! <laughs> I have a brain hand puppet too that's in the car. Yeah. But the the parent when I found out the parent emailed me this is years ago. The parent emailed me and said, "I think I found this brain model in I think it's yours from your office, but I want to let you know that I I, I will return it, but we're going to buy one for the child because I tried to take it from him and he said, "Don't take my upstairs downstairs brain." And I told the parent, "No, no, no, no. Keep like, the just brain. keep it. Keep, keep the, the brain." brain. Um, so I do think I've had that a lot, actually, kids steal stuff from my office, the younger they are, especially it's been kind of a fun thing to watch happen. What are they stealing? Is there a pattern? It's usually one item, like one, I, I use a sand tray. I'm not a Jungian sand tray therapist. I'm a client led therapist. So it, it's, it's not, I'm not interpreting. It's just a place for them to play. And periodically they will take, um, one item. And so whenever the parent, they parents will alert me, they're very nice. I always tell them, I, I don't, doesn't bother me, but what was it? I had a very interesting experience once where a child took Steve from Minecraft, one appendage at a time, thinking I wouldn't notice. So took a leg in the pocket, She'll took an arm know. in the pocket, She'll then took the head know. in the pocket. And um, She'll never know. Yeah, and so co coincidentally, when that child was done, that child actually came to me and said, I, I took your Steve. And I said, yeah, I know you've been taking my Steve for a long time. And I think there was the torso was left and he was like, I don't have to take this. And I said, no, it's it's OK. Steve needs to be all with all his pieces. And he said, this makes me choke up. He said, just like me, I have all my pieces now. So I was like, oh, goodness. There's just these special moments we get to experience with with clients. So. That's so basically, eagle. I have no boundaries for my toys. They can steal them if they want. It's like going to the dentist and getting a toothbrush and a sucker and sure. a, and a yeah. decoder ring. Um, I learned about this phrase called ego lending mm. and these like transitional objects. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I love to do when I'm out and about doing whatever is find feathers mm. and I like to collect them from different places and I've got feathers from all over the world and one of the reasons I like to collect them is because I like to give them mm -hmm. to be in a very Dumbo-esque but kind of not Dumbo-esque way mm -hmm. uh, an experience with that with the, about scarves with that oh my god I'm wearing I'm wearing the scarf this hat I was in Bogota was it Mexico Bogota or Mexico it's in South America one of the two cities and I'm talking to the psychologist, and he, gay man, gay large South American man, former Mormon, so lots of stigma intersecting, intersecting on him. And he was wearing this exact scarf. 
And I said, oh, I love your scarf. And when I was getting ready to leave, he wore it that day. And I said, oh, that's that scarf I really love. And he took it off and he placed it around my neck. Wow. And so I, in that moment, oh, and then another moment I was at the grocery store and I was checking out and I said to this, she was, she was wearing a lovely scarf. I said, oh, I love your scarf. And she said, oh, here, have it. And she gave it to me and I said, I can't take your scarf. She said, no, 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 you can. I'm a cancer survivor and these are scarves I wore around my head when I was in, in recovery from chemotherapy. And I'd like to give them away. And that very day, I was going to go visit another trans woman here in Utah who was also recovering from cancer. Mm. And I went and visited her and I told this lady at the supermarket, I said, well, I'm going to just be the temporary custodian. Because what you don't know is I'm on my way to visit somebody who needs this scarf and I'm going to give this scarf to them. And so I have this idea that people, if they comment on my scarf, I will just give them my scarf. Mm. In the way that you're giving Steve. In the way this psychologist gave me this scarf. Yeah. I don't want to do the contraction. Like, I like the giving part. Yeah. I don't know that the contraction is like about not giving. I think it's about noticing when we're overextended empathically. So, but I agree with you. I don't actually want to do the contraction either. <laughs> now that I think about it, I'm like, it's not that I have a desire to do that, right? It's that, like that I'm saying, oh, I really want to withdraw and, and kind of come back. What I notice is when I start feeling, and this has happened pretty recently. I had a, a client who, is looking for a job and looking for a job and struggling and he, he's autistic as well which presents some additional challenges for him because he doesn't like things that are um that don't have a way of doing it so the idea of like oh just send out a bunch of resumes and see what happens doesn't doesn't work so there was a, a moment in the last session where he was getting frustrated with me and he was saying just tell me what to do and i voiced because i don't hide things from clients i'm feeling inadequate at the moment it's interesting i'm feeling like i don't have the answer to give you and i want to give you the answer i want to give you the answer that solves everything and he said oh but that's not really your job i said no you're right and i said that's not my job and if if i did do that i would be making it up and that's not fair to you so that's more the contraction that i'm kind of thinking of is noticing when i'm at that range of like so empathically connected that I feel responsible for fixing things. And then I find that voicing that and saying, no, that's not, my goal is to be with you through this feeling. That's that contraction. Um, and I think clients need it, but don't always want it. I think a lot of clients mm. do want me to fix things. They do want me to tell them, especially with parenting. They want me to tell them the right answer. Fix my kid. Yeah. Or fix me as a parent, you know. Oh, I haven't I have, had that yet. It's rare, but I, I've had that one. <laughs> yeah. So I want to put a pin in the map about um, lots of stuff. <laughs> and I want to go back to a previous pin about sure. Hawaii. Yeah. Tell me about Hawaii. Oh, it's such a magical place. My, my family's about, I think, one, two, three, four generations back. Um, my 
original ancestors on one side are Portuguese and on the other side are um, French and English. The Portuguese side of the family came over when they were, I, I still find it hilarious, but they built railroads. There was railroads around Oahu and especially during plantation times so that people could move about. Um, my ancestors, the Farage family were stowaways on a ship that wanted to go and make their way and um that's where the fire in you comes from probably the oppositional nature <laughs> yeah okay, the non now we're getting there. i don't like rules i don't anytime someone tells me of a fact or a reality or a set of rules i want to ask why or well, why does that have to be a rule i don't think that has to be a rule rules are just words we make up so yeah probably um so i grew up in a huge extended portuguese um culturally portuguese family um that had lots of challenges as well but i was really surrounded by a lot of love growing up and hawaii is a wonderful place to be raised um you don't have a whole lot of money when you live there um but i had access to nature at will you know being at the beach we were always at the at the beach we were always camping we were kind of free range kids in some ways riding our bike is a very safe place um yeah, I miss it every day. It's it's it really is a wonderful place to be. One of my favorite former supervisors is a she's a therapist from Sacramento. Her name is Leilani Seckler. She's from Hawaii, mm -hmm. and uh, I see a lot of you and her, and a lot of her and you. Oh. There's something about Hawaii that's oh, and so we want to talk. I want to talk about Hukumuhini just just for a minute. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I met. Joe Wilson, the filmmaker from Hawaii, years ago, as he was making this documentary called Kumuhina, and he and his partner uh, came to San Francisco for the um, San Francisco LGBT Film Festival, and they invited me to come and do an introduction for their film, and they screened Kumuhina there, and they had all these people from Hawaii fly, fly over, and then they had the, the laities from Tonga fly over as well. Um, and it was just a magical event that I was somehow coattailed onto because, because I was from there and I got to meet all these amazing people and that Kumuhina, I don't want to appropriate her experience. Mm -hmm. And since you're from there and since you're working in the LGBT community, maybe, are you comfortable sharing a little bit about what you know about that? Cause I sound, I, I, I we have not explored this off the podcast but I feel that you have something that you, that I would love to hear that, about your knowledge and your context about that. Yeah, I I know about Kumuhina as a political, political as a, a societal and cultural activist. I have not had direct contact, but I think so. This might be a tangent, but it's the same topic. We love it. Yes. <laughs> One of the most important things that I was exposed to. And the, the older I get, the more I understand um, is that especially in hula culture. So I dance hula from a very young age. It was a huge, huge part of my life. I danced competitively. I danced oh, wow. even after I moved to Virginia. Uh, I was immersed in that, that culture. Um, is the idea of a gender spectrum. I grew up just, that's just reality. And I didn't even know that there was another way. Um, so in Hawaiian culture, the idea of gender is is very varied. It's it's very wide. Um, 
And the subset of individuals that on the mainland we would refer to as trans individuals in, in Hawaiian culture and in other Polynesian cultures, there is a subset, Mahu culture, um, that has its own cultural norms and is just a, a part of the fabric and especially um, in hula, it, it's completely integrated into the fabric of life. Um, gender is just such a different experience in Native Hawaiian culture. Um, and so I, I didn't grow up seeing the mainland US Western way of being in terms of trans individuals. And I was, I, I had a really hard time understanding. I, I felt, and we talk about that empathic kind of stretch. Right. Um, when I got into mental health and I started actually learning what the experience of being trans was like for so many people here, I actually had a really, I had to get some intense supervision uh -huh. because I felt angry and I didn't understand because if this is possible over here, how I grew up, why I don't understand why that doesn't happen. So in, in Hawaiian culture, basically, um, gender is a much more fluid construct and there are everyone, I don't know how to see there. It's very difficult in English to describe it too. everyone, everyone in their unique experience has a place. What language, what language would you find it easier to explain it in? If I spoke Hawaiian fluently, it would be easier because the Hawaiian language doesn't um, get super caught up with minutia. So um, it's much more of a conceptual language. So like uh, most people understand like the word aloha has multiple meanings, but they think it, it literally means hello and goodbye and I love you. And but it, it's beyond that. There, there is no bound to what it means. Um, kuleana is another word in Hawaiian that in English translates technically to responsibility. This is my kuleana, this is within my kuleana. But it's not anywhere near that word because if I see a sea turtle in trouble, that's my kuleana. If someone is getting injured in my community and I have no relationship with them, that's my kuleana. Um, so if I have um, a friend who is facing discrimination or is being harmed, that's my kuleana. It's, it's very, very difficult to describe some of these things. And gender is the same. So it's really hard for me to, to translate into English. And I don't speak, um, I, I have a, a working foundational comprehension for Hawaiian because Hula is in Hawaiian, so I, I can understand what I'm dancing, but I can't produce the language, which is one of my, my biggest sorrows in life is that I didn't continue and, and become fluent. Yeah. Someday, maybe. There's time. Yeah. You're but only cool. 23. Yeah, that's true. I am only 23. <laughs> one, awesome. of the, one of the sweetest things Benjamin does is he asks me, he'll, he'll get fixated. We haven't really talked about him, but he'll, he'll get fixated on topics or sentences and repeat them over and over. One of his favorite sentences to say is, why do you still look like a teenager when you're so old? <laughs> I say, I don't know, but thank you for the compliment. Thank you. You're my favorite kid right now. Yeah. Oh, you I might have that. actually more information on Kumuhina's actual work than I probably would, because I only understand her work through the lens of the larger societal, the cultural um, experience growing up. 
think, well, again, I don't want to appropriate because I am not Hawaiian. I've never even been there. And I know a lot about what she, who she is and what she does. And I will probably leave out giant chunks slash misrepresent her on some level. So with all those disclaimers, <laughs> Kumuhina is a, is a trans woman, Samahu from Hawaii. She's native Hawaiian. Um, and she, through her transition as a, as a late or mid to late teenager and being a competitive hula and competitive singer, he transitioned and adopted an outward gender expression and social expression that more aligned with her inner experience and kept up with the traditional role of singer, storyteller, hula dancer, um, social liaison, and really embraced this middle space, uh, the liminal space between binary male and binary female, and has become a Hawaiian uh, social figure and national treasure and lectures and uh, educates and kind of decolonizes gender in Hawaii. And there's a lovely film, I think it's just under an hour, talking about her work in Hawaii and about a private school where she is a teacher and she is doing the things that she can to expand gender awareness for the next generation of young Hawaiians and really carving a space out for middle schoolers, late elementary school, middle school kids to be who they know that they are internally and to make that a safe place for them to experience that on their own terms. And the film is a very powerful uh, educa educational tool uh, that my friend Joe Wilson, the filmmaker, and his partner, I can't remember his partner's name now, going to slap myself. Um, but when I latched on, when I found their film, and I immediately reached out to Joe, and the thing that's interesting, interesting about Joe is he is actually lives in Hawaii, in the part of Hawaii where the Mormon church is doing a lot of land acquisition and a lot of kind of shady, nefarious, um, cultural, political, geographical mayhem-making, let's say, mm -hmm. and um, flexing some muscle, which, as an ex-Mormon, find very offensive. And I have kind of latched on to those land issues in Hawaii in a, in a way that I, I'm a white colonialist mainlander. Why do I care about this? Well, I care about this because they're stealing people's land. And it's really crappy. I'm sorry. No. Is that on Oahu, the North Shore? I think it's several places, yeah. starting with the temple and the Polynesian Cultural Center. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a very insular community. We grew up going to PCC. Um, it's it's a field trip that every school child goes on. Sure. And PCC is actually a lovely experience. And along with it always came the kind of the whispers of, you know, that people have to work there or that, you know, it's a very, when, when you cross into that area of Oahu, it's a very, very insular society. You can hear Ben maybe a little bit outside the door. Um, and just about all the things that would happen there, but it's very, very quiet. You would hear about these things and about people leaving families and having a lot of challenges. And is it true that they can't drink soda? We would always hear that when we went up there. Um, as I drink my coffee. That's a privilege <laughs> of being an ex-Mormonist, being able to drink yeah. 
But we never, it was interesting because we, we never heard more than that. We never really, it wasn't something people talked about very much up there. Mm -hmm. I've never heard the outside perspective. That's yeah. fascinating. It was like whispers, but everyone knew not to ask more hmm. growing up as a child. Like the mob? I don't, it didn't seem, as a child, it didn't seem dangerous. It just, because people would say like, well, I want to, I, I would love to work here. And people would often say, oh, no, that's the Mormons work here. And that's not for you. This is for them. And we would drive past the temple and they'd say, look, there's the temple. And what happens in there? But it was always very like, nope, we don't talk. Nope. We just wow. enjoy our field trip and we go home. Um, yeah, interesting. So sometime, not on this podcast, if you want to know every single thing that happens in that Mormon temple, I would be glad to share that with you. Wow. It, it's just interesting for me and, and watching, I'm on a lot of ex-Mormon TikTok too. Is oh, that you are? Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, be, I grew up very, very traditionally Catholic and it's very okay. different. Portuguese. But, yeah. It's a, it's a very different experience. I know that, but, but, um, oh gosh, this might be a whole other podcast. I marched in the walk for life, the March for life. I evangelized with other children at world youth day. Um, I taught classes. In fact, the day I stopped teaching confirmation classes was the day that we got to the portion on LGBTQ people. And it was, you know, phrased very kindly and that, you know, we, we love all people, but this is a wrong thing. And I told the leader, I wasn't going to say that. And he said, well, then you, you can't do this. And I said, yeah, again, my oppositional nature, I said, okay, well then I'm not going to do it. Um, and walked out and never looked back. Look at you go. So much to the dismay of my huge Catholic family. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's just interesting that I grew up around so many people that are, participated in the Mormon faith, but knew nothing about it ever. It just wasn't spoken about. You're on Exmo TikTok. Yeah. Okay. You're next level now, Leslie. Yeah. I, I'm on Rule Breaker TikTok. That's, what <laughs> I'm on, that's, that's what it is. I'm on, I'm on LGBT TikTok and anyone that doesn't want to listen. Rule Breaker TikTok. Oh my God. Is that, a, is that a hashtag? It needs to be if it's not. In many different areas. I think that's why I like teenagers so much, to be honest with you. It's the last time in our lives that it's developmentally appropriate to just say a big F you to the entire world telling us what to do. After that, we lose that. I love, I love, I'm writing down all of your visuals because I'm looking at your crocheted F-bomb right now and I love it. Um, Can I send you one? Oh my gosh, I would be honored. <laughs> It's knitted, by, it's, knit, it's knitted by an ex-Mormon. Oh, that's so cool. It's even better, right? Yeah. I actually throw have... F-bombs all the time. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. I actually can't swear. I can't oh. say that word. And I think Tell me why. I, I believe it's very strongly entrenched in the early... Um, Catholicism is very ritualized, which is also why I loved it growing up. Mm. Even now, if I went to a mass, I would feel very, very calm and at peace because it is extremely ritualized. You memorize everything. It's a rhythm thing. And there's a written part that the audience participates saying. Yeah. yeah, it's a very, very soothing practice. But when you have something like that, that comes along with um, 
what would you call it? Just all those, all those rules and catechism is the only word I can think of, but I know other traditions don't use that word. Yeah. It, they get enmeshed. So the emotional soothing experience gets enmeshed with the belief system. And for me, anything, you know, any kind of swearing, impurity, all those things were really early on. I was the good kid. I was the, the good child. That's partially why I didn't get ever assessed for any kind of neurodivergence was I would just try harder. I would just do the right thing. And I got lots of praise for that. I'm also the oldest grandchild. Um, so I got the tons hope of the of, future generation. Yeah. Tons of praise and reinforcement for being good, doing the right things, as opposed to people doing the wrong things. And those people were probably doing the right thing, by the way. Um, so I, even today, I, I don't swear. I can't do it. When did you get to do the Leslie thing? You know, I'm still <laughs> learning that now. I think in, in bits and pieces, um, because I knew I was somewhere on the LGBT spectrum when I was probably 13 or 14, but didn't know that that's what it was. Right. Thought that that was just, you know, a part, probably a part of everybody. And that's my job to just like, you know, do the right thing. And, and then in college. Pray the gay away. Yeah. And, and luckily for me, I, I will say this and this, you know, this might still be my old pathology coming up here, but I will say that the, the Catholic family that I was raised in and the church that I went to was okay. never hateful. Thank goodness. I didn't, I wasn't raised in that kind of more evangelical tradition, fire and brimstone. I was definitely, and I went to Jesuit schools my whole life and the Jesuits. Gonzaga. Are, yes. So the, the Jesuits are a subset of Catholicism that is very bent towards science and inclusion. The intellectuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, they don't go all the way. They don't, they don't get quite to where they should be. Yeah. So luckily I had, there's some softness in there about that, but I think that almost inhibited me too, because then I couldn't uh, reject it yeah. all the way because it wasn't bad. So I think I've just, the Leslie way has been in bits and pieces, usually from these pretty dramatic turning points in my life, I, I got another piece of me. So my divorce was a big thing. That was hard. Oldest mm -hmm. grandchild always did everything, always did everything right. You know, to say, I'm going to break a marriage up with two young children on purpose. Cause I want to, that was like a big bomb, but needed that to push me in the direction of the next thing. I'm looking for my F bomb that I threw over my shoulder. <laughs> it blew away. It's, it's gone. I'm going to, I'm going to, have April minute you one and send, or I'll just send you mine and I'll have her send me another one. That's awesome. I, I love all the visuals. I'm writing them all down. I have to get your flags. I need some red and green flags. I will mail you flags, Leslie. Oh goodness. <laughs> this is turning out to be very beneficial for me in an unfair <laughs> <laughs> I just That's love it. That's a green I flag. The fact that you want red and green flags is a green flag. And I, I, gave, I gave out four pairs of these yesterday in session. They're just wonderful. Again, I think a lot of your content gives people permission to do outwardly out loud what we think and feel and doing that. Everything that I do with clients is really, I use these Apple pencils to describe this, is about congruence. So Apple pencil? What's an Apple pencil? Oh, these are from my iPad. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But oh, I keep on my desk. I have to have an Apple pencil now. <laughs> so like who you are 
and where your life goes, right, is often like this. So therapy, in my in my humble opinion, is I have these two Apple pencils and they're at like 12 and three o'clock is really about just bringing objective reality into congruence with who we are inside. That those two things are different, right? Our experiences in the world and who we are. This is our authentic self bringing our life into congruence, making these two little Apple pencils congruent, like in math, um, is really what we're doing. And that takes time. It's a slow, it's a slow bent towards congruence. I'm literally covering my mouth so I don't blurt out and ruin your, your, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. no, 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 no. I, I'm covering my mouth so I don't say, so I don't jump in and ruin your lovely Apple pencil thing, which I'm going to go, I don't have a uh, tablet or an iPad. I got 10,000 other pieces of crap, but you use pens, regular pens. <laughs> I do have a bunch of those. Yeah. So I talk about a very similar thing. Again, I heard from a Buddhist monk that where we are is over here mm-hmm. and where we want to be is over here. Usually, right? This gap in between where we are and where we want to be, this gap has a name. Mm-hmm. And that name is pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. So we can either move where we are or we can move where we want to be, mm-hmm. which is easier. Usually it's easier to move where we want to be closer to where we are. And the more we can move where we want to be closer to where we are, that distance, that gap closes so that there's less pain and suffering mm-hmm. till you can hopefully if that's what you want, make it so that the place that where you are is the place where you want to be and there is no suffering. Yeah. This is exactly, this is exactly what you just said. Yeah. And it's, it's really what my, what my book is based on is that same idea. We start where we are, we say where we want to be, and then we look at why, what's getting in the way. And so for parents, for parenting, it is often pain and suffering. So we focus so much on this, but I want to be here, but I want to be here, but I'm not here. I'm not here. I want to be here. We forget to look at this. And so if, if what's in here is your own trauma and we're not looking at forcing these two things together, we're talking about lifting some of this pain and then adjusting, I call it adjusting the sails, adjusting these sails over yeah. to where we're at. Do you sail? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> But I like the metaphor of, I use, yes. of, yeah, I use a lot of ship metaphor with clients because ship ship. Oh, I thought you said the other word. I probably use that metaphor too, but um, no, a I, lot have of a me- like- I have a metaphor that involves shit, but we'll talk about your, sh- <laughs> can we talk about your ship metaphor before we talk about my shit? There we go. I think just water. I use a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, water metaphors in what I use, but it's, it's really the same principle. It's, you know, the idea of a constant of a goal is really often part of the problem instead of mm. the idea of um, object looking objectively at things and accepting what is. Um, I talk a lot with clients about they'll come in and they'll say, well, why am I like this? And I'll say, yes, you are like this. And they'll say, yes, but why? And I'll say, yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll sit there in that moment until they sometimes they get a little frustrated. And then I'll, I'll say there's a, you know, there's a reason that I switch why to yes, because why implies an endpoint. Yes implies this is where we are. This is an acceptance. So yes, I am here. Yes, this is hard for me. Yes, I do keep finding these same 
negative relationship patterns. Now we're free to discuss where we want to go. But if it's why, then all you're looking for is an answer. There's no more to go from that. You know why? Because you're messed up. What, what do you do with that? Or you yes, fix it. I you take it. You take it to your therapist and you get it fixed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, I am this way allows you to honor the fact that, yeah, this is where I'm at right now. This really is. This is the sum total of my experiences. So that's our starting point instead of our end point. And don't you believe that the sum total of your experiences is your secret sauce, your magic fairy dust? And it's the reason why you're able to do what you do and sit in the spaces that you sit and hold that pain and trauma and give people hope. Yeah. Yeah. I have two very large tattoos on my back um, of two symbols one of hope and one of compassion mm. because when my ego starts to get real big and I think I know a lot of stuff, I remind myself, especially when people ask about them in the summertime, that those are my two jobs. End of story is to hope provide compassion. Yeah. To provide compassion for pain people experience and hope that things can be different than they are. So you That's just it. blew up another, you blew open another topic tattoos, which we can't talk about. Well, we could, but that will distract from another topic that you blew open your book, mm-hmm. which I want the very first. Well, I'll take the second copy because you probably want the first copy. <laughs> Tell us about the book. So it's a series of books. This is the first. Wait, one. what? <laughs> it's, it's three books. <laughs> it's even better. It's a trilogy. The trilogy. Everything has to be a trilogy. Um, I've this been is the first about- of three trilogies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What would that be? Okay. I no, wonder. I wonder what that would be. Um, it's a topic that I've had. The book has been written in my mind for about a decade, but I haven't wow. had enough life experience to make it come together. And, and I told myself that I'm not going to write something until it's ready to be written, until I, I, I have enough knowledge and wisdom to give. Um, because I just didn't want it to be incomplete. And that's probably why I'm agonizing over the last, I spent two hours the other day on chapter six, rewriting how, you know, the order of things. Um, but basically it's, it's this idea of this model of this bridge and there's four steps. Um, the first is to really describe where we are now, including strengths and what's going well, because most people that want help for something start with all of the things that aren't working. And sometimes when I ask parents, you're coming in because your child is screaming, yelling at you. Great. When are they not screaming and yelling at you? And they'll be like, well, I don't care about that. I want to talk about when they are. And I'll say, okay, but what proportion of the day are they not screaming? Well, about 80% of the day. Okay. So why? Why aren't they screaming at you? And then we'll spend some time on that because- Con- The context. Right. We have to understand- why? And sometimes parents say when they're sleeping and I'll say, okay, so when they're unconscious, they're doing exactly what you want them to do. That's where we start. Um, and then oh we God, look at where we wish we were. And we look at two things, not only, right. Not only what do we want it to be like, but what do we want it to feel like? People miss this all the time. I want to be better at school. Great. That's a great goal. What do you want school to feel like for you? I want to feel competent. Oh, that's what you're looking for. I want to have a better relationship with my mother. Great. What do you want that to feel like? I want her to, I want to feel like I have boundaries then. Oh, okay. Um, And then the third step is looking at what's in the way. And that's another piece people forget is okay. So most Carl Rogers talked about, you know, most plants, all plants naturally turn 
towards the sun unless they are blocked. So if if you're not where you want to be, what is the barrier? And then when we the, the last step is making a plan, we address the barriers, not the deficits. We don't look at the deficits. The deficits are symptoms of a barrier. And then we work through it. So that's the premise. The first book is on parenting. The second one will be for college students specifically who are neurodivergent, making that transition. And the third will just be the same plan, but how to use it, kind of auto therapy, how to use it with your own self to problem solve when you keep running into the same issue over and over and over. That's my book. That's your books. The first one is called Acceptance-Based Parenting in a Neurodivergent World, Neurodiverse World. Can you make that shorter? I probably should. I've thought about that. A you lot. could maybe. Yeah. Don't shit on yourself. Yeah. I, I do not. I do not like it when my favorite people shoot on themselves. I know. I'm, and I tell my clients that all the time, and they, I love it. They call me out, con- probably more than I call them out, and I love it. I thank them every time, because it takes a long time to unwork that that pattern. I have a client who has a swear jar, but instead of a swear jar, it's a should jar. I love it. It's a ten very bu- good ten bucks every time. Oh. And in session. If she shoulds herself, she picks up her phone and she transfers $10 into her should jar <laughs> right in session. That's a really good idea. She's planning a trip to, 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 to I think, Cancun or something like that <laughs> with the money from her should jar. Love it. But that would, get, make, that would make me want to should on myself a lot if that was my... Yes. Yeah. Or my ADHD would just get in the way and I would forget. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll add that. Sure. Later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I've got a post-it note of people to bill. I probably won't bill them. <laughs> I need, I need to, it would be more beneficial if I built. Mm-hmm. And that's really what, you know, in parenting wise, that's what the book is about too, is this using this acceptance lens. So that instead of saying, you know, if my kids aren't picking up their toys, I'm a bad parent. If I'm shitting on myself, that makes me bad. Um, the whole book is about, we just are who we are. And we, we're, we, we're at where we're at. And if we want to be somewhere else, cool. What's getting in the way and how can we provide you a safe and accepting you know, way to get there? It's like a Popeye model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like, um, I'm sure you follow Casey Davis. Do you not follow Casey Davis? At Domestic Blisters? Oh, <clears throat> on TikTok? Uh, yes. Please hold. <laughs> You would love her stuff, I think. Domestic blisters. Yeah, at domestic blisters, she. Um, She's an organizing lady. Yeah, she has a very not organizing, more. Morally neutral cleaning philosophy author. She, her, I'm your mom now. Oh. Yeah, her philosophy of of specifically kind of care tasks in your home and taking care of yourself as a person is very congruent with this kind of idea for parenting, and so I will often. Um, kind of send people over to her as well. But it's really the same idea of you just are who you are. We're, Messy we're, is morally neutral. Yeah. Yeah. I've and started so, using that language actually more because of listening to you. Oh, I got it from her. So we, there we go. <laughs> we, we, but, we're, if we're, but honestly, this is how it works, right? Absolutely. It's, it's what makes this community so incredible. People are asking me, is it okay if I use your green and red flags? And I'm like, is it okay? 
Yeah. I stole it from somebody else. Yeah. You better, if you want to use it, yes. Yeah. Someone said, a, a friend of mine told me the other day that she was worried about people stealing my idea my for my book because I'm showing the framework of the book. And I was basically like, I sure hope they do. <laughs> I hope everyone takes it because the book will be out and it's not going to be expensive and it has way more detail than what I'm giving on TikTok. There's worksheets, there's all kinds of things in there. But I hope somebody steals it. I hope they make a million dollars off of it, showing it to everybody and people use it because that's really what, you know. But all... register for an ISBN and get it copywritten. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I used to teach copyright and, and trademark. Cool. That's another so, conversation for us to have. Off, please off. do that. Yes. But I'm not an attorney. I'm just a photographer. Well, I was a photographer. Um, okay. So I know that you have a hard appointment on the hour and we are at 27 minutes after. And I want to honor your time and give you space between this event and your next event. Do we want to go 20 more minutes, 15 more minutes, 10 more minutes? What's good for you? My first appointment's at one. So I'm good to go till noon and that gives me a ton of time. So that for me is 10 oh. o'clock my time. Yeah. So another half hour. Perfect. Yeah. Um, favorite ice cream flavor, favorite Ooh. color. Um, for sure. Jamocha almond fudge from Baskin Robbins. Wow. I don't have a favorite color because one of the things about me is that I change all the time. Right now, I am super into green. I love green. what shade of green? Like a like a hunter green, like a deeper green. That's my favorite color of all time. I love it. It's it really is something that brings me like warmth. I think it's also like in winter, I'm really focused on green things because <laughs> they ain't laying around. Yeah. And I didn't grow up like that. I, seasons are hard for me. Seasons are really, I've had a really challenging time with mood. Um, better better every year, but a really challenging time with mood since being in a climate that is never the same, <laughs> which I find baffling. But I suppose Christmas on the beach is baffling to people too, so. Yeah, I don't understand what that's about. <laughs> Santa Claus and palm trees and shorts and Love Hawaiian it. shirts. What's the... Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay. Favorite songs. Favorite, like, boom, boom, boom. Top three. What are your favorite three songs? Ooh, Alive by Pearl Jam. Oh, okay. Are you a grunge kid? Oh, yeah. Plaid, ripped jeans. She's grimacing hard. Yes. Very, very. Yeah, I suppose I should say something. It's a podcast. I can't just make no, it. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll, I'll narrate. I'll commentate. Yeah. Uh Yes, very hardcore 90s grunge is still my jam to this day. Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Metallica. Oh. Nirvana. Uh, Kurt Cobain's death impacted you? M massively. I know where I was the moment I was in my beat up old 79 Ford Mustang that was powder blue right outside of Morning Brew, my favorite coffee shop where I was probably going to buy a Jolt Cola. Um, and it came over the radio and I pulled over to the side and cried. Hmm. Yeah, it was really difficult. It's, it's funny. I was just talking about this with my middle child. We were watching the Billie Eilish documentary and I was making a comment about what a gift her parents gave her by staying so involved with her. 
um, and supporting her through fame. And my, my child asked me about, you know, famous people that I loved. And I started talking about that and they were saying basically, but they're, wow, all those people are dead. And I said, yeah, it was the nineties were a little bit rough. A lot of my idols, you know, passed away. It was really hard. Were you a grunge kid as well? Yeah. I was not a grunge kid. Yeah, I was a very um, happy on the surface, lonely, sad teenager inside. So that music allowed me to have a space to be that person with actual feelings that wasn't perfect and great all the time. And I knew on some level we were the same person and that confirms it. Only we, we divert in this important way. You had a place to express how you felt. I did not. Yeah. And that that's one of the most important things that I try to teach parents is your children are real beings with thoughts and feelings and an inner world that is separate and apart from you. And they must have a place to feel and express everything, even if you don't agree, even if you think it's silly, even if they're overly emotional in quotes. Children must have that because that's how we start to build who we are. And if they don't, what do you see developmentally later on? I see adults who have to work 10 times as hard against that internalized parent to find who they are. It doesn't mean they can't find who they are, but their work is so much harder. They have to fight so hard to reclaim that part of themselves and it takes so long. We want to save our children from that suffering. Hypothetical exercise. Okay. Okay. We're going to the dog pound. Mm -hmm. Okay. We go in and we look at the puppies. How many of the puppies do you want to save? All of them. <laughs> yeah. I want to take all the, and, and that's why we can't go to the shelter in real, real life. I, I can't imagine leaving any, we talk, I talk about that about my dog. I have a deaf rescue puppy. And sometimes I lay with her and think, my God, you were living in a, on a slab somewhere. And that would have been your life. And sometimes I think about my clients that way, that when parents come for help, it, it, it brings me joy. But sometimes I think about all the parents that don't come. And I have great sorrow about that. What was the word you used? Your influence, your responsibility? Oh, Kuleana. Yeah. Kuleana. Mm -hmm. I am learning about that more and more. Mm -hmm. About all the kids I can't see. I still have, oh, I might cry. Thank you, Estrogen, for showing <laughs> up in this lovely moment. One of my fifth graders in Sacramento, mm. young black trans kid, uh, the youngest of 12. Wow. Maybe 13 kids. Yeah. And I was the only space they could be openly themselves in. Mm. And my job was to make sure that I didn't out them to their mother. Because had that been the case, 
it would not have been safe for this kid. Mm -hmm. I still think about that lovely, lovely, lovely child. And I still consider that child in my kuleana. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And I know they're not. And yet there's a very real string from my heart to their heart that I hope never goes away. Because mm -hmm. they taught me a lot. Back to Cobain. Meaningful lyrics from Kurt Cobain. I don't know if I can think of a specific lyric because this is also part of um, my neurodivergence that I, I think as I get older, I'm learning more and more about. Um, I experience music in a very different way, I think, than most people. So when I think of Cobain, I think of a vibration that I feel like right here in the center of my chest. I don't think of words. And I, if you put on his music, I can sing every song. But when I when I pull up the memory, it's not a word he said, it's a vibration of pain in terms of who am I? And is there a place for me here? Am I supposed to be here? Who, who am I? Where where do I go? Where do I fit? And if I don't fit, what does that mean? I think there's an answer for me, but that's one of the questions I get asked by teenagers all the time too, is if I don't fit, does that mean that I shouldn't be here? And for me, what I came to is I decide what it means. something about that that is just like a call like a like a I just feel it right here and I feel that same way with um um Eddie Vedder when Eddie mm. of Pearl Jam went especially in Alive especially in that song um I actually have a TikTok where I'm sobbing singing along to that song quite a while mm. back yeah but it's not the words, it's that it's that feeling of calling out to the universe about where, who am I, where do I belong? What do I do with this life? But I also think that, and I, I don't mean to take over what you were trying to ask me, it has to do with a really big topic for me, which is mortality, because um, I talk about it a lot, kind of allude, allude to it a lot, but I have, I have an illness that is gonna shorten my life compared to other people. And mm -hmm. so a lot of what I do and how I parent and how I interact with people is about the idea that I only believe that I have today, that's all I have. So whatever I get done today, However I interact with people today, that's all that exists. 
and that guides a lot. So I think that music really speaks to that for me. How pure is that? The only version, the only version of you is the version that exists in this moment right now. And ever will. There will never be another moment. This is all there is. So I'm not striving for anything. I think that's why I like the book and the ideas and I, I'm not attached to where that's going to go. The only thing that matters is what's happening. You have brought where you want to be exactly in alignment of where you are. Yeah. How freeing is that for you? It's very freeing. Sometimes, well, a lot of my work, because I use act a lot, I've used on myself. So when I'm in pain, I'm usually noticing that I'm pulling away from that. It is very freeing. Oh, <laughs> one of my favorites. I have it right behind me too somewhere. I have to say though, I opened it up and I started reading a particular chapter and <laughs> I was like, mm, I squirmed a little bit. Oh yeah, ACT for sure has some subsets of it that is, and I I feel the same way and I think that's almost better <laughs> because I don't believe in getting attached to any dogma. No dogma of any kind ever because these are all words. Everything in here is words. And so if it's useful and it helps people and it helps free them, then we use that. And if there are pieces that challenge how I see things or make me think about it differently or I out and out reject, that's okay too. Because it's not scripture. And if it was scripture, I would burn it. <laughs> I would I would bring my lighter. Damn. Yeah. So you did answer my question about the songs you love. Yeah, I went on a long road around that. No, no, no. They went on the perfect road. Yeah. What do you think we haven't talked about that you thought you'd want to? Hmm. I think the responsibilities of mental health professionals in the area of intersectionality and race is another area of my life that I feel very strongly about. Um, probably more strongly than most psychologists. And I, um, if we're speaking very freely. I hope so. I, I have a belief about burning down systems that don't work, even when it hurts. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that our way of assessing and diagnosing people needs to be burnt down and rebuilt. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And yet I, I participate in the system because that's what we have with the understanding that it's flawed to its core and racially biased in a way that isn't even concealed. That's how I feel about gatekeeping for the trans community yeah. and medical interventions. Oh my gosh. It's the reason I became a therapist. Was to burn that shit to the ground. And I know that I have to work within that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How would you change what you would like to change? How would you change? Do you have an alternative or do you just not like the present? Do you have a solution? I have an idealistic solution. Um, I think the framework of mental illness in quotes should be moved towards a functional model. So um, if someone self-identifies as needing help or isn't functioning well, 
that they um, would be assessed holistically with instrumentation that is cross-culturally normed, um, which obviously takes decades to do. Um, I believe that the biggest thing actually, let me take that back. That's on the science side. The biggest thing would be universal healthcare for mental health related conditions, especially with no cost and no need for a diagnosis, that it would be a functional system that if you present and there, there is an instrument for this. And now I'm not going to remember what it's called. I'm not gonna remember what it's called and I'll look it up and send it to you, but there is an instrument that you can use that a that evaluates someone's life on 10, um, domains, basically how each, how functional each domain is currently. And the dimensional scale helps determine what intensity of need for support they have and what areas need support. That I want to take that scale. I want to take that. It's free. It's online. I just have to find it. We use it in community mental health. So one of the other things we didn't talk about is I, I recently quit a, my dream job. A year ago, mm. I quit my dream job of running a giant mental health agency. I had just be, been promoted to the director. Um, I loved it. It was all Medicaid-based community mental health in all these different areas. Um, and one of the things I was trying to get done was implementing that system instead of the diagnostic system that pathologizes poverty, that the very culture that is diagnosing you inflicted upon you. Um, I mean, I feel very passionately about how we've treated people of color in the world and this country for a long time. And that, again, that goes all the way back to what we first talked about, my, my roots working with immigrants. Um, so that's what I would do. I would change the mental health system to a functionality model um, with diagnoses included when appropriate. So if someone's bipolar or has schizophrenia, we need to know that so that we can target symptoms that are challenging, but medication is not gonna solve everything. They might need other functional supports. And you see this a lot with autism. So someone will get slapped with a diagnosis of autism and get offered a cookie cutter set of interventions none of which are appropriate for the individual because we're not looking at functionality. We're only looking at category cookie cutter classification. Can I put a, like 30 red pins in autism? Yeah. 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 We didn't talk about that at all. Oh my God. I don't know how. Yeah. Like I, for the past 17 years, I've been wondering what I'm going to say to Leslie when we finally get together yeah. <laughs> and I don't even ask about autism. I like I legitimately want to interview you again and only speak about autism. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And I and I I have to maybe even be fully transparent and vulnerable. I feel like I want that education mm -hmm. from an expert mm -hmm. that I trust. Um and I didn't get accepted to the use PhD program and so I'm not sure where I'm going to get that education if it's not from generous people like yourselves. And that is a huge problem too. People, people ask me all the time, how do I know if my therapist is an expert in autism? What, what question can I ask them? And I want to be able to point them towards a training program or a CE or something, but it just doesn't exist right now. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a crazy reality that that doesn't exist. And when it does, it typically comes from non-autistic people. So that's... It's wild. Yeah, I would love to have that conversation. And I would always include the caveat that I have I have half of the expertise. 
Um, mm, okay. Because I have the practitioner side, I have the parent side. Oh, Quantico is shelling today, if you can hear oh, that. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> it's very exciting. I thought that was your dog <laughs> farting. Yeah. Um, but I think anyone looking for training in autism, if if the initial person training you has expertise but is not autistic, then that's great, but it's half. Must, must, must talk to people who are autistic because we have disenfranchised them from their voices for so long. And that's why I love Finn's book. Mm -hmm. They are all openly autistic. I love it. When I was doing or preparing my suicide training, the intersectional one that I did, I specifically went to a training by AAS for neurodivergent autistic people and suicidality. And that course and their materials are developed by a therapist, therapist psychologist who is autistic. Love it. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying as best I can to, you know, pluck out the, yeah. the source where it matters the most. But isn't it wild that that's not in existence as a training program? There should be a recertification. There should be something. And it's wonderful that you're doing all the work. And I've done that too. What about the people that don't? It's so scary to me that, you know, people are marketing themselves. Big sigh. With Big sigh. And I, and I hesitate to call other clinicians out because I'm a baby therapist. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I, I have had years of training being an expert in another thing. Mm -hmm. And I taught for a decade about other things. And so I know what it's like to be the expert. Mm -hmm. And I know what it's like to receive training from people who aren't the expert. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm in this new iteration of who I am, I'm seeing those gaps and I'm unsatisfied. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's very frustrating actually. Yeah. And I think that same way with intersectionality and understanding diagnoses from a multicultural lens is another gap. So I'm excited to see what the Gen Z therapists do. I'm hoping that their passion for social justice is going to expand as they become clinicians. I'll be their biggest supporter. Right. I'll be on board. It's 10 to, mm -hmm. Favorite dad joke. Go. Ooh. Your go-to. I don't know. <laughs> why didn't Why didn't the fart graduate from high school? Why? It got expelled. <laughs> it's funny because we tell dad jokes all the time in our house. I could ask Ben. He could tell you a dad joke. Would you like Ben to tell you a dad joke? If that, if with consent. Okay, let me check with him really quick. He's right okay. outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Benjamin. She's obtaining consent. She's explaining the context. Ben's outside. I can't see him. He, he also does not have a dad joke, but he would like to say hello to you for a moment. He does not have a dad joke. Hi. Oh my gosh, Ben, are you going fishing? Are you going hunting? Yeah, well, soon we're going on a family like trip. We're gonna camp. We're I mean, hand grenades. Get hand it? things. They're hand grenades. Get it? It's a I'm hand, hand grenade. It's a hand, <laughs> and I put water in it. It's just a water balloon shaped like a hand. Right. Do you have a piece but, of life advice? That was a dad joke. That, that technically was dad joke. Hey, bravo! Ten out of ten. Well done, Ben.
Thank you. You're welcome. Um, hey, Ben, I'm, I, can I be like your third or fourth biggest fan? Sure. Okay, cool. Uh, shower lettuce, big fan. Broken glass, not a big fan. Uh, same. Ben, ben, same, okay. Ben oh, making breakfast. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Ben making breakfast. Oh, yeah. Remember? Yeah, I made breakfast. I, <laughs> I celebrated and cheered and danced around just with, with you. I thought that was beautiful and brilliant. One day, Ben, could we um, swap dad jokes? Could we swap dad jokes? Sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm a chicken. Okay. Gobble, gobble. <laughs> All right. <laughs> See you later. Bye. You're the best. <laughs> Bye. Have a good day. Bye. Oh, my gosh. Have a good day. <laughs> he really is the best. He tells everyone um, at every store we go to, he hopes they get a raise because they're so good. He just really does like, now don't get me wrong. People don't see all the other sides on TikTok. No, of course, he, of course. There's, there's lots of challenges, but he. Um, and you're very vulnerable about just letting us see just enough. I think that's very lovely. Yeah. And we, I do a lot of asking and there's, there's a ton of TikToks that I would love to post that I found that would just be awesome. But I do let him watch them and obviously, and then if he mm. says no, we just don't do it. And that, yeah. you know, I don't want him to grow up later and discover that his life was on display in ways that make him sad. Truman Show ask. Yeah. Yeah. So everything is consent. Um, always. And I also just wanted him to, to learn that growing up. That's something I, I didn't learn. Autonomy and choice. Yeah. That I had the right to, to set boundaries, that I had the right to say yes or no to things. I was taught you don't know yet. So we're, we will tell you what's right. Oh, and that, that's identity foreclosure from yeah. James Marcia. Yeah, and that has lasting ripples. Exhibit A. Yeah. So have no fear. He has does not have that illusion. <laughs> he's he's that. fully autonomous <laughs> in every way. Yeah. I am curious. Let's bring it all the way back maybe to the astrophysics mm -hmm. and the... Um, therapeutic use of that and possibly even the philosophical framework of that mm -hmm. i'm quite certain you're familiar with neil degrasse tyson mm -hmm. yeah. one of his pieces that makes me cry that i share often with my clients is he talks about this one great secret of the universe mm -hmm. and how we're all made from stardust mm -hmm. have you seen that presentation i'm sure you have mm-hmm and that everything that ever was and ever will be is all circulating around in the same matter that has always been present since the Big Bang. The other thing that he talks about that I love is that perception, we have to remember that our perception is not always fact, even when it seems like fact. That some Quantum things, physics. Yeah, that some things that are so impossible to fathom like the moment that a photon leaves the sun and arrives at your eye for that photon is the very same instant in time because it's traveling at the speed of light and that we would experience that in a completely different way but both of those experiences are valid and true and so I think when I, especially when I'm working with teenagers who have their realities questioned their whole lives and people saying, no, that's not what happened. I didn't do that to you. You're making this up. That helps them detach. That metaphor helps them detach from the need to convince 
and really just be that photon that I am that light that did happen. And it doesn't matter that you can't perceive that because you just can't, you can't perceive that. But that doesn't invalidate my experience. I love science. I knew you were amazing before I, <laughs> no, I'm, I laugh because it's so hard for me to view myself that way, but I also have joy when I am in these moments with someone, when someone says, you're amazing, there's that initial kind of like, oh, that's uncomfortable, but then I have joy. I, I laugh because I love these moments. And he, it's important that we all hear those things from people. When you're able to be in a moment and someone says like, I think you're great. I think you're great to really let that in. I think you're great. And I love moments that are created like this. So this moment will never happen again. Even if we talk again, even if we meet, even this this very moment. If, if we meet? Yeah, once the pandemic is done and we meet. There we go, I'm plucking <laughs> that if out of there. Um, yeah, this moment will never be here again. So it's so joyful. So thank you, I really appreciate you saying that. You're amazing. Thanks. Thank you so much, Leslie. No, thank you. This has been, this feels like part one. <laughs> so we'll have to do this again. Yes. I thought you'd never ask. And that almost sounded like a demand, not a request. Me? We'll have to do this again. Yeah, we'll have to do. That's I would a demand. Very, I would very much like to do this no, again. No, no, no. I'm okay. I'm okay with the demand. I'm okay with the demand. Let's get that very clear. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, there's so much there's so much to talk about, I think, in all of these areas that even even, you know, this long only just scratches the surface. We're at what? Just just under two hours of actual talking about stuff. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even gotten to the really expansive. St I mean, we have. Mm -hmm. And so many conversations yet to have. And I think the magic of these experiences is that whatever happened in this moment is the exact thing that was supposed to happen. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, it's four minutes too. You have a thing? Everything is one. Yeah, everything in an hour. Yep. Oh, you have a thing in an hour? Yeah, because it's about to be 12 in my, my time and I have a, a session at one. Okay, so I'm feeling like emotionally I'm kind of wrapping up and now you tell me you have another, well, you have another hour. I do, I do. I have to make myself look like a therapist because I'm in my signature hoodie right now. Put on a cardigan and a sweater and you are there, baby. I have, today is blazer day. I'm starting to film a, a, a series on, I've been asked to film all my blazers, so I'll be that doing- That purple blazer from Thread Up. <laughs> I'm sorry, Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix, yeah. This podcast not sponsored by Stitch Fix, but it could be. <laughs> Perfection. Love the blazers. Those, those are my jam. Are you doing a live with your blazer? Um, Wednesday mornings, I usually do a blazer live. Blazer. <laughs> and then Friday nights are hoodie lives. Oh my Both God. Equally authentic versions of myself. Someday when we do a part two, I would love to talk about gender expression and, um, and lifespan kind of development both for, for cis and non-binary and trans people, just gender expression itself, yeah. what happens, um, especially for um, 
young people when we give them the space to do that. So that's why the blazers are important to me because I, I wasn't allowed to have, not allowed, it wasn't socially acceptable for me to present with a very gender expression. This is interesting because this is one of the, this taps into something that I do as well. This is one of the reasons why I love wearing skirts. Mm -hmm. I was, I'm catching up for 50 years of lost time. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've gone through a hardcore kilt phase in the past six months. I have five of them and I'm ordering more. Yeah, I think we try to reclaim. And that's what I've done with swearing. Mm -hmm. That's what I've done with coffee. That's what I've done with alcohol. Um, a lot of things. So I'm doing with certainly with gender, mm -hmm. certainly with sexuality. Um, it just so happens that my gender identity and expression flopped, which made it more in alignment with my sexuality, which is you know kind of convenient. Mm -hmm. Sadly, my history is falling in love with straight women, <laughs> which doesn't do me well now. Yeah. But anyway, oh, oh, uh, one other thing. Oh, the live that I'm, it's the live series that I'm planning on doing mm -hmm. is taking requests for songs. Uh-huh. Okay. Which I do already quite, quite often at night, but then interpreting the lyrics love that oh as I a green that. flag red flag experience and telling why in the moment it's a red flag experience i love that idea gosh that would be incredibly so with my teenage clients i've actually sometimes asked them to write make me playlists to help me understand what they're feeling if they can't find the words that would be a wonderfully powerful experience to do with them in real time Just play the playlist and let them do red flags green flags or do it together. I love all your interventions. I hope you write a book. I have about five books. I'm in, I've written I've written one. Yeah. And I have about five more. Mo many of them are children's books. I actually am thinking about marketing this idea hmm. with a two or three page worksheet about the concept and some examples. Love it. And just I'm sending you these though. The PO box in your bio is where I can send them to. Hmm. All right. Yes. <laughs> Do you want them autographed or non-autographed? I'd love them autographed. Actually, that I, that legitimately, please autograph them. <laughs> uh, okay, I, 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 Leslie Cook Fan Club. We're starting the Salt Lake chapter today. Actually, it started a while ago, but I'm the president, so. Very exciting. My first fan club office, so. <laughs> right? I love it. I really, I really appreciate the time, not only just because um, like the professional time, but I feel like I get to talk to a lot of people on TikTok, but connecting in this way is so much more meaningful. Um, and I'm just very grateful for everything that, that you do. And when, once we, once we end this, I have other questions and other things I want to ask you about. Oh, well, let me put away the brain models and top, stop the recording. <laughs>